This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Fact Hunter Radio Network. Everything you've ever been told is a lie. Everything you've been taught about life is a lie. Open your eyes. Live our whole lives without any real adventure to call our own. What is any life if not the pursuit of a dream? Delmarva Studios proudly presents The Fact Hunter, hosted by George Hobbs. The Fact Hunter is proud to be on the tip of the spear in the ever-growing truth movement. The Fact Hunter questions everything, refuses to be indoctrinated, and is strictly a no-sheep zone. Check out our website at thefacthunter.com. Download our iOS and Android apps that are streaming 24-7 content. And you can email the Fact Hunter at thefacthunter at mail.com. Without any further ado, here is the Fact Hunter himself, George Hobbs. Just the facts, ma'am. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome aboard to another edition of the Fact Hunters podcast. Uh, as I record, it's a rainy Thursday morning, about 11 a.m. on this June 23rd, 2022. Still no word from SCOTUS. They have added an opinion day for tomorrow. So the highly anticipated case that may overturn Roe versus Wade and make for another interesting summer may come as soon as tomorrow. But today it's episode 113, a continuation of our J. Edgar Hoover special Today, we're going to look at uh, the MLK assassination. Uh, We'll talk about James Earl Ray. We'll play a clip from his interview, and we'll look, did J. Edgar Hoover order the assassination uh, of Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, Just a quick reminder, we're going to jump right into it today. Uh, For all things Fact Hunter, please go to thefacthunter.com. Questions, comments, concerns, uh, just send me an email thefacthunteratmail.com, and of course you can follow me on Gab, Telegram, and Instagram at The Fact Hunter. All right, let's go. So before we jump into the J. Edgar Martin Luther King connection, let's look at James Earl Ray, right? He was the guy that, according to your history books, uh, excuse me, books, 
was the man convicted of assassinating Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, on April the 4th, 1968. What a tumultuous year 1968 was. Ray was convicted a year later, 1969, after entering a guilty plea, thus foregoing a jury trial and the possibility of a death sentence, and was sentenced to 99 years in prison, which, of course, uh, he would die in prison. He was born March 10, 1928, in Alton, Illinois, the son of Lucille and George Ray. He had Irish, Scottish, and Welsh ancestry and was a Catholic upbringing. Uh, In February 1935, Ray's father, known by the nickname Speedy, passed a bad check in Alton, Illinois, and then moved to Ewing, Missouri, where the family changed their name to Rains to avoid law enforcement. Ray was the oldest of nine children. His sister Marjorie died in a fire as a young child in 1933. Uh, As many folks in that era did, uh, Ray left school at the age of 12. He later joined the Army uh, at the close of World War II and served in Germany, which leads to a lot of questions. The post-1945 you know, 1945 to 48 time frame, there was a lot of interesting things that went on over there. Um, now, Ray struggled to adapt to military life and was eventually discharged for ineptitude uh, and his lack of uh, adaptability in 1948. That's the story. So uh, he was very much like his father, committed a variety of crimes prior to the murder of Martin Luther King. Ray's first conviction for criminal activity was a uh, burglary in California, happened in 1949. In 1952, he served two years for the armed robbery of a taxi driver in Illinois. In 1955, he was convicted of mail fraud after stealing money orders in Hannibal, Missouri, then forging them to take a trip to Florida. He was imprisoned for four years in Leavenworth. In 1959, he was caught stealing $120 in another armed robbery in a Kroger store in St. Louis, Missouri. At that point, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison for these offenses. Now, this is the interesting part. Reportedly, he escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary in 1967 by hiding in a truck transporting bread from a prison bakery. Now, According to the official narrative, following his escape, he stayed on the move throughout the United States and Canada, going to St. Louis, then Chicago, then Toronto, Montreal, back to the United States in Birmingham, Alabama, where he stayed long enough to buy a 1960 Ford Mustang and get an Alabama driver's license. And again, this is a wanted fugitive that escaped from a prison, and he was able to get a driver's license. So while he was in Mexico, Ray was using the alias Eric Galt, and he attempted to establish himself as a pornographic film director. Using mail-ordered equipment, he filmed and photographed local prostitutes. Frustrated with his results and jilted by the prostitute with whom he had formed a relationship, Ray left Mexico around November 16, 1967, arriving in Los Angeles three days later. While he was there, Ray attended a local bartending school and took dance lessons. His chief interest, however, was the George Wallace presidential campaign. Ray was a racist and was quickly drawn to Wallace's segregationalist platform. 
He spent much of his time in Los Angeles volunteering at the Wallace campaign headquarters in North Hollywood. It's funny that they portray Wallace as a racist, but if you look back to his previous election, he had 80% of the black vote. Interesting. He considered uh, emigrating to Rhodesia, which is now today uh, known as Zimbabwe, where a predominantly white minority regime had unilaterally assumed independence from the United Kingdom in 1965. And again, how much of this is true and how much is fiction to cover up, you know, just part of the storyline? We don't know. The notion of living in Rhodesia continued to appeal to Ray for several years afterwards, and it was his intended destination. uh, That's where he was planning to go after the king's uh, assassination. So the story continues. March 5th, 1968, Ray went um, rhinoplasty which was performed by physician Russell Hadley. On March 18, 1968, Ray left Los Angeles and began a cross-country drive to Atlanta, Georgia. He arrived in Atlanta March 24, 1968, and he checked into a rooming house. He bought a map of the city. Our friends at the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, later found this map when they searched the room when he was staying. On the map... The locations of the church and residence of Martin Luther King Jr. were circled. The question is, who circled it? James Earl Ray or the FBI? He was soon on the road again and drove his Mustang to Birmingham, Alabama. There, just a few days before the the event, he bought a Remington Model 760 Game Master. It's a 30 out 6 And he got a box of 20 cartridges from the Aeromarine Supply Company. He also bought a Redfield two times, uh, seven times scope, which he had mounted to the rifle. He told the store owners that he was going to go on a hunting trip with his brother. Ray had continued using the Galt alias after his stint in Mexico. But when he made the purchase this time, he used the name Harvey Lohmeyer. After purchasing the rifles and the accessories, Ray drove back to Atlanta. He was an avid newspaper reader and he purchased the Atlanta Constitution. Now, the paper reported King's planned return trip to Memphis, Tennessee, which was scheduled for April 1st, 1968. The next day, April 2nd, Ray packed a bag and drove to Memphis. So April 4th, 1968, uh, Ray killed civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. with a single shot fired from his Remington rifle, while King was standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Shortly after the shot was fired, witnesses saw Ray fleeing from a rooming house across the street uh, from the hotel where he had been renting a room. A package was abandoned close to the site that included a rifle and binoculars, both conveniently found with Ray's fingerprints. Ray fled to Atlanta in his white Ford Mustang, driving 11 hours. He picked up his belongings and fled to Canada, arriving in Toronto three days later, where he hid for over a month and acquired a Canadian passport under the false name of Raymond Snide. He left Toronto in late May on a flight to England. He actually stayed briefly in Lisbon, Portugal, and returned to London. June 8, 1968, two months after King's death, 
Ray was arrested at London's Heathrow Airport, attempting to leave the UK for Brussels. He was trying to depart the United Kingdom for either Angola, Rhodesia, or South Africa using his falsified Canadian passport. So, of course, <clears throat> he confessed. Then he recanted his confession three days later after he was apprehended. Uh, he had entered a guilty plea under the advice of att- his attorney, Percy Foreman, who um, was a lifelong criminal defense attorney. He said there was no way, you know, here's the thing. By pleading guilty, he avoided the death penalty. Um, and he said there was so much evidence that uh, he had zero chance. And, you know, at that point, it was death by electric chair, which would have been a very possible outcome in a jury trial. Because, again, the TV had his face plastered everywhere. And it was one of the biggest events of 1968. So it would be hard for any jurist not to have that guilty you know, frame of mind going into the trial. And I guess Percy Foreman acknowledged that and said, sure, you can go for a trial, but you're probably going to meet the electric chair. <clears throat> so um, unbeknownst to Ray... There's, uh, you know, there was a de facto moratorium in place since 1967 following the Furman versus Georgia ruling, which meant the death sentence would have been commuted as unconstitutional. So his his uh, attorney, Percy Foreman, was not very well informed. Ray would end up dismissing Foreman as his attorney and would afterwards call him Percy Fourflusher. Um claiming that a man he had met in Montreal back in 1967 uh, who used the alias Raoul had been involved in the assassination. And he asserted that he did not personally shoot Dr. King. Okay, I want you to remember that. And then I want you to think of Timothy McVeigh, Lee Harvey Oswald, people who were, quote-unquote, part of the team, right? But he was not the one who pulled the trigger. Just like... Timothy McVeigh was part of a team, but he had no idea that was going to blow up that day. Just like Lee Harvey Oswald, who was standing uh, by the front door on the ground of the book depository building when the shootings take place. These guys were just fall guys. And uh, James Earl Ray was nothing more than a fall guy. Again, he came out and said he was partially responsible without knowing it, which was hinting at a conspiracy. And we're going to take the next two minutes to play an interview. I think this was from 1977. Let's listen to it. So you heard uh, heard the news on on the radio? Is that the way you heard it? So you were driving, you left that that gas station at 2nd and Linden, what, about 6 or... I don't have any way of knowing, I think it's around that time, but Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it's Linden. I know the approximate area it is. Mm -hmm. I've seen the map on the Enquirer. And, uh, and you were going back to uh, to pick up this man that you say is Raul? Is no, way? I just winged the car back. So you heard all this confusion. They turned and flipped on the radio. They said Dr. King's been shot. Uh, at that, did you think you were set up at that point? Uh, no, I was headed towards toward New Orleans when I had the radio on. I used to keep the radio on. I think uh, 
I didn't have too strong feelings about the, the shooting. Uh, when when you met Raul, you did you you didn't know any other name for him. That's the name that he said was his, and that that's all you ever knew. Yeah, I guess not. And you met him where? Canada. Up in Canada. And uh, and you just met in a saloon, or? It was a saloon in, in a waterfront area of uh, Montreal. Mm -hmm. You never became good friends then. Uh, no, I wasn't good friends. Mm -hmm. Just business. Uh, mm -hmm. These were all aliases. Uh, I assume. Uh, you don't think Raoul was a real name at all, then? Huh? No, I've got some freedom of information papers in there saying there's Raoul Santiago or something in New Orleans. It's supposed to be a him, but uh, I don't have the FBI. That's material from the FBI files, but I don't have no uh, nothing to substantiate that. So you think their mind was made up when they got you? Well, it had to be made up. Uh, I, they couldn't. Uh, uh, well, I don't know what, if there's any penalty for uh, extraditing someone fraudulently or not, but I think uh, I can see their legal point where they've got to stick with their story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. While James Earl Ray was convicted of killing him, one Florida man claims his father was actually the one who shot Dr. King. And as Justin Clark reports, that man was from St. Augustine. St. Augustine today is a bustling tourist town. St. Augustine in the 1960s still had tourists, but it was also a hotbed of activity during the Civil Rights Movement. Dr. Martin Luther King visited and preached in St. Augustine and encouraged demonstrators. I got a, a telephone call about 15 years ago from Historian a man who David said Nolan he lives had in St. Augustine lot. and has studied the civil rights movement there. And that phone call he got came from you know, from a man who'd said he had spent a lot of time in the slave market in 1964. This covered pavilion in downtown St. Augustine is often referred to as the slave market. Whether slaves were actually sold here depends on who you ask. But during the civil rights movement, it was often a place for public demonstrations. And that was where the Ku Klux Klan types held their rallies. Uh, so I knew that something was up. Nolan says the man on the phone was Ronald Wilson, who was a minister at the time. He asked Nolan some historical questions. Shortly after that, he held a press conference up in Gainesville. And at that press conference in 2002, Wilson announced his father was actually the man who shot and killed Martin Luther King in Tennessee. His father was Henry Clay Wilson. A local plumbing contractor who had run for public office here. In newspaper reports, the younger Wilson said his father on his deathbed admitted to killing King. Reports also indicate the younger Wilson had no evidence that his father shot King. James Earl Ray was convicted of killing Martin Luther King, but Ray recanted his confession. And some of King's own family, including his widow, Coretta Scott King, believes someone else besides Ray shot King. Nolan says the FBI investigated Wilson's claims, but nothing came of it. 
But, you know, the, the assassination of Dr. King, like the assassination of President Kennedy, is something that people will always want to do. We know everything, you know. Is, is it just a simple cut-and-dried case, or was there some kind of larger conspiracy behind it? So I suspect we haven't heard the last of it. In St. Augustine, Jessica Clark, First Coast News on your side. Now, First Coast News has tried to find Mr. Wilson, but we have not been able to connect with him just yet. One of the larger stains the FBI has ever had to endure in its not-so-spotless record was revealed in its entirety Thursday, a letter asking Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to kill himself, signed, sealed, and delivered by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. The letter was discovered by a Yale history professor who penned an op-ed for the New York Times. Beverly Gage notes the letter occupies a unique place in the history of American intelligence, the most notorious and embarrassing example of Hoover's FBI run amok. The letter, known as the suicide letter, refers to the leader of the civil rights movement as sexually psychotic, a dissolute, abnormal imbecile, and a fraud. It ends with the famous warning, You have just 34 days. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. The letter, along with a purported audio tape of MLK's extramarital affairs, was sent to the King home and discovered by his wife, Coretta Scott King. Dr. King assumed the letter and tape were from the FBI, and after his death, a Senate committee confirmed as much. In an age where whistleblowers like Edward Snowden have exposed just how far agencies like the NSA or FBI can reach, the newly released full version of the suicide letter is worrisome to many. The Electronic Frontier Foundation released a statement on the letter. The implications of these types of strategies in the digital age are chilling. Imagine Facebook chats, porn viewing history, emails, and more made public to discredit a leader who threatens the status quo or used to blackmail. These are not far-fetched ideas. And Vox calls the letter a terrifying reminder of what government surveillance agencies can be capable of. FBI Director James Comey acknowledged this blemish in the FBI's past when he was first introduced as director, telling the crowd, I'm going to direct that all new agents and analysts also visit the Martin Luther King Memorial here in Washington. I think it will serve as a different kind of lesson, one more personal to the Bureau, of the dangers in becoming untethered to oversight and accountability. For Newsy, I'm Jamal Andrews. There you go. So many different stories, many different aspects. And another one, of course, is did J. Edgar Hoover himself order the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? And, of course, the history books, as we read uh, at the open, right, the, the official narrative is that James Earl Ray shot Martin Luther King Jr. The U.S. government says so. All the school textbooks say so. And it's enshrined as unquestioned gospel in the pages of Wikipedia. But, uh, as always, the official story is full of holes. Instead of mounting uh, evidence that suggests that King may have been murdered as part of a conspiracy planned, uh, or at least abetted by the FBI, in coordination with local Memphis police personnel. And remember, most of the the upper hierarchy of the police departments across our country for a long time uh, have been Freemasons. So in this scenario, Ray served once again as a patsy. 
just like critics allege Lee Harvey Oswald was in the JFK assassination. The real shooter, uh, according to these accounts, struck King not from the boarding house bathroom, allegedly uh, from where Ray shot him, but from bushes behind the Lorraine Motel, which would be you know, the King assassination's version of the grassy knoll. So let's look at some evidence. Um, maybe one day it'll be revisited in a court or a congressional committee. Probably not. Um, but if the King families, you know, demand it to be reopened, I'm not sure that they will again. I think at some point they're just done. I'm going to put it behind them. Maybe I, I don't know. Um, but of course there was the famous court case in I think 98 where they won a large sum of money. <laughs> a court agreed that there was a conspiracy involved. But let's look at a kind of a reconstruction of events leading up to King's murder and the subsequent uh, purported attempts by local and national government officials to cover up their involvement and, of course, pin it on a patsy named James Earl Ray. And like every other time, right after the crime was committed, uh, they knew who it was and his face was plastered around the world. It was 6.01 p.m., April 4th, 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. was struck in the face by a bullet as he was leaning over the balcony of his room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. An hour later, he was declared dead at nearby St. Joseph's Hospital. King had come to Memphis as part of his Poor People's Campaign to support a sanitation worker strike. The civil rights leader was increasingly promoting socialist views and had become more outspoken uh, in criticizing the war in Vietnam, which might have led to a little conference between LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover because they did not want their war machine to be stepped on. Look what they did to JFK when he tried to quell the Vietnam, uh, war in Vietnam. And a lot of people forget that Martin Luther King Jr. was running for president, president excuse me, on an anti-war ticket with the one and only Benjamin Spock. And a lot of people don't remember that. There's the famous buttons, King Spock. Uh, after King had given a speech denouncing the Vietnam War at New York's Riverside Church one year before his assassination, U.S. Army spies, once again, <laughs> uh, Americans going after their own people, and this is the Army, recorded uh, black radical Stokely Carmichael warning him, quote, the man don't care you call ghettos concentration camps. But when you tell him his war machine is nothing but hired killers, you got trouble. And unfortunately, uh, Stokely Carmichael was 100% correct. So police authorities fingered James Earl Ray, a career criminal from Alton, Illinois, who had escaped from the Jefferson City, Missouri Penitentiary uh, in April 1967 as the lone assassin. On May 6, 1968, syndicated columnist Drew Pearson wrote that the FBI was conducting perhaps the most painstaking, exhaustive manhunt ever before undertaken in the United States. 
Its G-men have checked every bar ever patronized by James Earl Ray, every flop house he ever stopped at, every cantina in Mexico that he ever visited. It has collected an amazing array of evidence, all linking Ray with the murder. And again, the story goes that Ray was supposedly motivated by race hate, right? He allegedly began stalking Dr. King on the weekend of March 17th in L.A., and then he arrived in Memphis on April 3rd with the murder weapon, and he booked himself into a seedy rooming house that was owned by Bessie Brewer, and that was right above Jim's Grill, directly across from the Lorraine Motel. Just before 6 p.m., Ray barricaded himself in a communal bathroom where he pointed his rifle outside the window and shot Dr. King. Afterwards, in his haste, Ray neglected to eject the spent cartridge. Back in his room, he wrapped his rifle along with an overnight bag in a bedspread and ran outside. At that point, Ray was spotted by another tenant in the rooming house by the name of Charles Stevens. And that was the state's chief prosecution witness who said that he saw Ray running out. When Ray saw a stream of police cars rushing to the scene, he panicked and he dropped the bedspread with the rifle in the doorway of the Knipe Amusement Company on South Main Street. He then fled in a white Mustang. Again, as we stated earlier, he first made his way to Atlanta where he ditched the car. Then he headed to Toronto, where he hid for a month, and then to Portugal, and then to England. And then again, he was trying to catch a plane to Brussels, and that's where he was apprehended. Ray's fingerprints had been found on the gun that allegedly killed King. You know, fingerprints that was on his scope, binoculars, beer cans, and a copy of the Memphis Commercial Appeal. At his trial, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Of course, he did that, he thought, to avoid getting the electric chair. Now, the 1979 House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was convened to investigate not just Martin Luther King's assassination, but the Kennedy assassination, it alleged that Ray carried out the killing to collect a bounty from two St. Louis racists who were both dead at the time. In 2012, G. Robert Blakely, the staff director to the HSCA, said that he had been deceived by the CIA, which had failed to inform him that a government liaison to the HSCA, George Joannidis, had a CIA background. Blakely told the Jackson, Mississippi, Clarion-Ledger newspaper that, quote, Thoughtful people today, not just nuts, think that more people than just James Earl Ray were involved in Martin Luther King Jr.'s killing. You fast forward to 1999, a mixed-race jury presiding over a wrongful death civil suit by the King family in Memphis, Tennessee, reached a unanimous verdict that King was assassinated as a result of a conspiracy involving the U.S. government. And, of course, 
it's not a coincidence, in my opinion, that this ruling came out in 1999, one year after James O'Reilly died of cancer. King's widow, Coretta Scott King, said afterwards that there's an abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband. The jury found that the mafia in various agencies within Memphis, within Tennessee, and of course within the federal government were deeply involved in the assassination. And Mr. Ray was set up to take the blame. But of course, the trial took place after he died. So, you know, <laughs> you know, he died a martyr. Uh, that's not the right word. You know, he just died um, a patsy. And listen, <clears throat> obviously, you heard the story of the guy. He was no saint. He was a career criminal. But for his name to go down officially in the books today, which we always talk about, McGraw Hill, who writes the history books, um, it's just full of baloney. So three days after his sentencing, Ray fired his attorney, Percy Foreman, who was connected to the mob, and said he was pressured into pleading guilty, and he had been set up as a patsy. Foreman was also given 60% of his royalty rights on a book about Ray by William Bradford Huey, which would have not sold if it were about a non-assassin. Do you get it? <laughs> the FBI was never able to match the bullet that killed King with the rifle, allegedly left by Ray on the steps of the Knipe Amusement Company. Again, by forcing him to plead guilty, they avoided all of this evidence. Ray's fingerprints were also never identified in the room he had, quote, rented at the rooming house. A well-known crime scene investigator determined that the shot from the rooming house bathroom could not have struck King unless Ray had hung out the window or smashed a 10-inch deep hole uh, in the wall with his rifle to fit. The angles were completely wrong. Memphis police officer Vernon Dolahite said that he arrived on the main street within one minute and 50 seconds of King's shooting. And he did not see a fleeing Mustang or hear screeching tires, raising a doubt that Ray could have gathered his stuff, dropped it in front of the Knight, uh, music uh, amusement company, excuse me, and then detour from his car and got away to escape notice by Dolahite. It wouldn't have happened. And again, Ray's decision to drop the bread sh the bed sheet supposedly resulted from his panic at seeing a police you know, a parked police car after exiting the boarding house. Uh, you know, the car would have been blocked by a hedge, which was cut down the day after King's death, not coincidentally. According to Guy Knipe, the bed sheet was dropped on the steps of Knipe Amusement Company approximately two to five minutes before King was shot. Evidence was planted. Can I describe the person dropping the bundle as having a chunky build, which did not 
match Ray whatsoever. He was a tall and very, very slender dude. Ray's old prison radio, which could have been seen outside the bundle, supposedly fell out when the bundle was tossed in the doorway. However, it was not on its side, uh, visibly cracked or broken. And again, the rifle was also packed tightly, which a panicked killer in a hurry to get away would not have done. The prosecution's main witness, a guy by the name of Charles Stevens, had been arrested over 150 times and was dead drunk at the time of the shooting, according to his wife and landlady and a homicide detective who interviewed him, Tommy Smith including the cab driver who picked him up. So four witnesses who said the guy was dead drunk at the time of the shooting, 6.01 p.m. Uh, People say that he was looking to get the $100,000 reward for identifying the Slayer of King. Later, when shown a photo of Ray by CBS journalists, Stevens said that he was not the man he had observed running out of the boarding house. But again... They pressured him to plead guilty, so none of this came to light officially. Stevens' cab driver, James McGraw, said the hall bathroom was open and the bathroom empty uh, as he approached and left Stevens' room, indicating that the shots did not come from there. Stevens' common-law wife, Grace Walden, also said that she heard the shot come from outside her window in the rooming house which opened onto the bushy area between the rooming house and motel. The only man she saw coming out of the rooming house was a short male with salt and pepper hair wearing an open army jacket and plaid sports shirts, which did not fit Ray. So when James McCrawl was picking up Stevens, he said he noticed a delivery van with two white Mustangs parked within 50 yards of each other, one in front of Jim's Grill, the other just south of the Knipe Amusement Company. Another witness, Charles Hurley, told Ray attorney William Pepper that after arriving to pick up his wife at the rooming house at 4.45 p.m., he pulled up behind a Mustang with Arkansas plates parked in front of the rooming house and south of the Knipe Amusement Store. Ray's Mustang had Alabama plates and was parked north of the Knipe store. Ray said that he got into the car between 5.45 and 5.50 p.m. and went to a local service station to have a spare tire repaired, meaning he was not at the rooming house when Martin Luther King was killed. However, his brother, John Larry Ray, said James lied and was waiting in his Mustang for his handler, Raul, which you heard speak about earlier. Uh, at the time King was shot, believing that he would be the getaway driver for some job. Shortly after he heard the shot that killed King, uh, Raul jumped into the back seat of his vehicle and put a sheet over his head, and Ray took off. After a few blocks, Raul jumped out of the car and fled, and of course, as the story goes, uh, Ray drove all night to Atlanta. After making his way to Canada, Ray was assisted financially by a mysterious fat man 
who provided him with money in Toronto. Researcher Pete Del Scott suggests that it was planned for Ray to be apprehended after Robert Kennedy's assassination to enable a restoration of confidence in the government in the wake of such a tra- uh, tragic event and, of course, the rioting that had followed King's killing. And again, Ray didn't have a clear motive for killing King apart from a possible financial one. He could have never survived on the lamb after his prison escape and in the two months after the King assassination without outside support uh, with an entire country looking for him, it just would have not been possible. Ray had received money not only for travel and lodging, but also for fake identities. Then, of course, there was his plastic surgery we spoke about and his dance classes and his bartending classes and hypnosis. He was a strong anti-communist who otherwise was apolitical. And, of course, the media painted him as a racist. However, people close to him say that Ray had a black girlfriend and that the evidence was planted by police to make him appear to be a racist when he was not. Most significantly, Ray had no expertise in firearms, um, which, look, if you went through basic training, you have some. But uh, the story goes, during a stint in the Army, he was trained with an M1 and obtained the lowest level of ability, which would have been marksman. Um, And listen, even with the scope, you have to understand, you just don't buy a gun, put a scope on it, and shoot. You have to zero your weapon with a scope. It's not automatically zero. Do you understand what I'm saying? You put the scope on, you go to a range, you shoot, you have to make adjustments to where it's zero perfectly. Because people, when they put their nose on the charging handle and look through a scope, everybody does it differently. So where's the story about where he trained and where he zeroed in with his scope? Nowhere. The salesman who sold him the alleged murder weapon in Birmingham which he had been told to buy uh, by the mysterious Raul, said that Ray did not seem to know anything at all about firearms. He says, I mean nothing. King's chauffeur, Solomon Jones, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference attorney, Chauncey Eskridge, who were both looking at King when he died, They said that they saw King's body lurch upwards when he was shot and not downward, indicating that the shot probably would have not come from the rooming house bathroom. Instead, it must have come from the bushes behind Jim's grill and between the rooming house and motel. Ray's first lawyer, Arthur Haynes Sr., noticed tree branches that would have been formidable obstacles to shooting King from the rooming house bathroom. Though these branches were cut down the next day by the police, by the Memphis police, to try to cover this up. Several eyewitnesses reported seeing a man crouching in the bushes and running away afterwards, and a sound like a firecracker coming from the bushes. Harold Cornbread Carter, who was drinking wine in the bushes, told investigators that he saw a man wearing a high-necked white sweater run away with a long gun in his hands after hearing a loud bang from the bushes. 
again, that would have meant it was not James Earl Ray. Olivia Caitling said that she saw a fireman standing near the wall below the bushes yelling at the police, telling them that the shot came from the clump of bushes above the area where he was standing. But the police ignored him. Reverend James Orange said that he saw smoke rise from the bushes right by the fire station seconds after the shot. The smoke was most likely sonic dust rising from the bushes caused by the firing of a high-powered rifle in the heavily vegetated area. Orange and a reporter, Kay Black, also alleged that the brush area was cut and cleared back the morning after the shooting, along with the inconveniently placed tree branch that blocked a clear shot from the rooming house. The pre-dawn cleanup request, according to Maynard Stiles, Deputy Director of the Memphis City Public Works Department in 1968, came from the Memphis Police Department on the early morning of April 5th, 1968. Um, One more section and then we'll break. I told you this was going to be at least a two-part, and it's a lot to it. Um, And there was a lot of suspicious happenings. The night before King's killing, uh, the only two black firemen in the Memphis Fire Department, uh, Norval Wallace and Floyd Newsom, were ordered not to report the next day to their posts at fire station number two, which overlooked the Lorraine Hotel. The Memphis PD failed to form the usual security squad of black detectives for Dr. King and withdrew other key police security units to a position five blocks away from the Lorraine Motel on April 4th, which was a key factor that enabled the assassins to get away. Black Detective Ed Reddit was removed from his uh, surveillance post about an hour before King's shooting and placed in home confinement after the FBI had warned the Memphis Police Department of an assassination attempt directed against him by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which (laughs) ended up being a phony and uh, served as a diversion. Just before King was shot, someone else called in a hoax from downtown that drew police attention to the northeastern side of the city. So the hoax indicated an organized plot, and there's zero chance that Ray could have been the lone assassin. Much, much, much more coming up in the next edition that'll drop in the next few days. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, Martin Luther King. Um, and after this series is over, we'll talk about the death of J. Edgar Hoover. Um, he didn't die of natural causes. I don't think so. But stay tuned for the next couple days um, for part three of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, we'll continue the assassination of Martin Luther King uh, in the next couple days. Don't forget tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern time, Uh, It's the Listener Call-In Show. Everybody have a great rest of your week. Uh, I'm the Fact Hunter, George Hobbs, saying keep your head on a swivel. And until next time, my friends, we will see you. God bless. Everybody be well.
You're listening to the Fact Hunter Radio Network. Just the facts, ma'am. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.